The Joseph story is one of the most fascinating narratives in all of the Bible. Joseph, uh, Jacob's favorite son, as you remember the story and as we discussed that fanciful coat that he received, the dreams that not only he dreamed but also he interpreted for others who dreamed, the brothers who had had all that they could take of him, who carried on in the good tradition of their father and grandfather in terms of trying to reconcile life, and they sold him off into slavery, staged his death. As far as Jacob knew what had happened, he thought that Joseph had perished and he made his way on that journey across the desert, housed in jails at times, but finally into Pharaoh's palace and was the interpreter of Pharaoh's dream to the point so impressing Pharaoh that he became this trusted overseer of all of Pharaoh's Egypt. Joseph was completely assimilated into the Egyptian culture. Can you sort of imagine what that might have looked like? Can you imagine how his eyes would have been painted to look very narrow and sharp and how he would have worn the headdress and how he would have worn the gown of Pharaoh, his friend and confidant, one who had entrusted to him all that was his. He looked the part of an Egyptian. He acted the part of an Egyptian because he was an Egyptian. He was an immigrant to their culture. Now, it was Joseph's foresight that allowed Egypt to prepare for a national crisis of famine. It wasn't just Egypt that was dealing with this. It was a global crisis. But the thing that was so beautiful was that Joseph being able to see by way of the Pharaoh's dream, what was about to occur was able to guide Egypt in building storehouses and filling those storehouses with so much grain. They said it was like sand. The grain was so thick for them for seven years. And then the famine hits. Lo and behold, who would show up but Joseph's brothers asking for assistance for the family. But they had no clue that it was Joseph who was providing for them the assistance. When they looked into his eyes, all they could see was another Egyptian. They had no clue that Joseph was the one that they had sent packing 20 years before. 
Oh, he must have delighted with the idea that he knew the secret and they did not. In fact, when Joseph first engaged them, he began to toy with them because we the readers know the story as it goes. But the brothers did not know the story. And Joseph toyed with them, not only not disclosing who he was, but accusing them of being spies there in Egypt. Finally, requiring them to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to Egypt for what reason they had no idea. Sending them on their way, their bags filled with grain, and at the top of the grain, the very money that they had turned over to pay for the purchase of that precious grain. They were stunned when they discovered it. Halfway on their home, way home, knowing that they would have to make that right because surely it was a mistake. But when they finally returned to Egypt and tried to pay for what they had gotten for free, the stewards said, we don't understand. You've already paid for this. Joseph must have been laughing to himself at his brother's ignorance. Playing games with each other can be a fun thing. I know this because I've just spent a week playing games with two of our grandchildren. And there is nothing that exceeds hide and seek. Oh, what fun it is to play but things became serious once Benjamin the youngest in the family shows up Jacob had not wanted to let Benjamin go for fear that if he let him out of his sight the same thing might happen to him as happened to Joseph and Joseph knew this and when he saw Benjamin he had to run from the room, it says in the telling of the story, because he was so overcome with emotion at seeing this younger brother of his. But he still was not through with the matter. And when he sent this family packing on their way, again he put in the tops of their bags the repayment of what the cost of the grain had been. And they discovered once again down the road that this was the case. When they began to make that discovery, it was because representatives of Pharaoh's household had been sent at word that a chalice had been taken 
And when the brothers began to say, no, nothing like that has happened here, but they looked in Benjamin's sack, they found the chalice that had been taken, supposedly, from Joseph's household. And Joseph made it clear that it would be unnecessary for any of them to return except that Benjamin would be his slave for life. Toying with his brothers, he began to witness their agony, knowing that they could not go back to Jacob and share with their father that they did not have Benjamin with them. It would have killed Jacob. Judah actually pled for mercy and asked that his life be given as a slave in place of Benjamin. You know very well that Joseph could have held a grudge. And in fact, that may have been part of what was going on as he toyed with his brothers. But Joseph's theology ran much deeper than that. Joseph and his theology to which he had finally come would not allow for the preserving of that kind of bitterness. Because he knew as well as we know that that takes its toll on the person in whom it resides. Walter Brueggemann, scholar of the Old Testament particularly, said Joseph is willing to trust a purpose for his life that is larger than his own horizon. His heart was being schooled in forgiveness, not hate. When he revealed his identity to them, it was not with judgment, but incomprehensible forgiveness. And they literally were pulled into his embrace as he assured them not to be distressed or angry with themselves, God had been in the mix of redeeming their situation all along. God is not a puppeteer. For those of you who may wonder if simply God orchestrates everything that occurs on earth, it may be that you have an idea that God works that way, but let me assure you that that would leave no room for the act of faith and the free will that is a part of our deciding to become a part of what God is doing in the world and to be followers of Jesus. God is not a puppeteer. But as Barbara Brown Taylor says it, he is more like an artist able to work with anything, 
any raw material that may be in front of him. God works in spite of our human agendas. After Jacob's death, Joseph and his brothers once again were in each other's company. And this is the passage of Scripture that is read for our reflection this morning. The brothers come back to Joseph wondering if they will still be safe now that their father is dead. And as they come, Joseph begins to weep at the thought that they did not yet embrace the idea of their full forgiveness. It is hard to receive. Have you ever been forgiven in that kind of way? Have you ever done something that you felt like was unforgivable and yet someone loved you to the point to forgive you so thoroughly that even now you still look with amazement on it? Joseph wept. His brothers wept. Together when they approached to make certain that that un incomprehensible forgiveness was there. I tell you that when it was unleashed, when forgiveness ever is unleashed, it transforms whatever and whomever it touches. One of the most wonderful statements on forgiveness that I've read, and I read it just recently uh, because of the events in our nation, of the protests that have been occurring and the recent deaths of C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. But I read a quote by Nelson Mandela, and you will remember that Nelson Mandela, of course, was this known individual who was a part of helping the country of South Africa move beyond that governing through apartheid to a democratic and representative government much more akin to what we dream and live into here in these United States. Nelson Mandela was elected as the first black head of state in South Africa following the dismantling of apartheid. Before his death in 2013, he reflected on his life and his learning and he said, forgiveness liberates the soul. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Not everybody discovers that. But during Nelson Mandela's time in office, he helped to set up 
what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which gave the opportunity for hearings in a very formal and public way for not only the telling of the stories of those who had been oppressed throughout their life, but also to hear the confessions of those who had oppressed them. It was something unlike the world had ever seen. And the purpose being reparation and restorative justice. You and I do not realize the power of forgiveness. Again, I repeat this quote, forgiveness liberates the soul. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. I knew a fella who was let go from his work abruptly. And he was as angry as he could be. He came to me and shared with me how those at work had done him wrong. And there he was without a job and wondering what he was going to do next. I grimaced with him at his situation. And in fact, I had bad feelings toward those that had fired him. <laughs> but I let this part of our conversation be for about a year, realizing that he was tending it so closely and had to work through it on his own. One day he was back in my office and I said, how are you doing? And he said to me, through tears, choking on every word, he said, he said, I've wanted to talk with you about that. He said, because of our earlier conversation, I had thought to myself that they were the ones that needed to be forgiven. He said, but I have come to the notion that I'm the one that needed to be forgiven. And I thought to myself, how does this happen? And you know the answer to that. Only by the grace of Jesus Christ does this happen. That he would be able to see that maybe they had good reason to fire him. <laughs> And the next time I saw him, <laughs> when I had returned for a visit in that town, guess what? They had rehired him. <laughs> Who knows what kind of conversations had gone on. But his life was completely changed. And their lives were completely changed by forgiveness. You've heard me tell the story of a young man whose picture I have on my wall in the office. He and I are standing in the edge of a pond in Lawrence County 
just before his baptism and I have hold of him he had to help me as I remember the pond was very slippery at the bottom and he was much stronger than me so I'm not really sure if I was baptizing him or he was baptizing himself but I was just holding on for the ride what I remember though is that that he had avoided the subject of forgiveness and redemption for so long over and over I would ask him are you ready when I would see him and every time he would look at me and he would say I'm not ready but one day when he and I were together he looked me in the eyes and he said I'm ready now preacher and I knew that forgiveness had taken root within his heart Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness when Peter approached him on the subject it wasn't just out of the blue I mean he had spent three years following Jesus and being a part of his ministry the learning curve must have been severe for Peter but he was picking up on the basics as he went and he knew even before he asked the question he knew the answer but it was still such foreign thinking that Peter sought clarity even yet you remember what Peter asked how many times should one forgive seven times as many as seven times and Jesus's response not seven times but seven times 70 Jesus was always teaching about the importance the revolutionary work of forgiveness Jesus spoke to a crowd who threw a woman at his feet accusing her of adultery and Jesus's response he who is without sin cast the first stone do you remember that rather than talking about hating one's enemies Jesus was the one that was instructing from the very first those who might follow him with the words I tell you love your enemies care for those who despitefully use you do you remember that Jesus at the very end of his life as he hung upon the cross looked at those who had actually nailed him to that structure and prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do forgiveness was not some sideline importance with Jesus it was at the heart of who he was one of my very favorite stories is Jesus and Peter 
after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter beside the sea. And he looks at his disciples from afar. And of course, you remember how they were closing up, about to take their nets in again. And he asked them to cast those nets out, trusting. And when they do, and the catch was too much for them to bear, Peter jumps into the water in order to swim to the shore to be with his Lord. And there Jesus is already cooking breakfast and moves with Peter off to the side and quizzes him, not judgmentally, but lovingly he quizzes him, do you love me? And Peter's response, after having been asked three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says over and over again, then feed my sheep. Jesus' forgiveness is so full, so unmerited. And he asks us to do the same. For all those who may have offended us. All those who may have taken advantage of us. All those who may even now be doing something that is an injury to us. We are called to forgive as well. Our calling is to transform the world through forgiveness. And my question to you is, whom do you need to forgive? Whom needs to be transformed by forgiveness today? Even we who do the forgiving are transformed by the forgiveness that our Lord sets in motion.